So we're going to start where we had left off last week, but um, again, we're really not going to get started with looking at them uh, in a, you know, a study kind of way until we get to verse 30. But chapter 22, verse 21 is where we left off. And he said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. And they gave him audience unto this word, and then lifted up their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. And as they cried out and cast off their clothes and threw dust into the air, the chief captain commanded him to be brought into the castle and bade that he should be examined by scourging, that he might know wherefore they cried so against him. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said unto the centurion that stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, he went and told the chief captain, saying, Take heed what thou doest, for this man is a Roman. Then the chief captain came and said unto him, Tell me, art thou a Roman? He said, Yea. And the chief captain answered, With a great sum obtained I this freedom. And Paul said, But I was born free. Then straightway they departed from him, which should have examined him, and the chief captain also was afraid, after he knew that he was a Roman, and because he had bound him. On the morrow, because he would have known the certainty whereof he was accused of the Jews, he loosed him from his bands and commanded the chief priest and all their council to appear, and brought Paul down and set him before them. And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God unto this day. And the high priest Ananias, Ananias commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall. For sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law? And they that stood by, said, Revilest thou God's high priest? Then said Paul, I wist not, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come again tonight thanking you, Lord, for this wonderful day that you've given us. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your salvation. Lord, thank you for the opportunity that you've given each of us, the blessing to be here, to meet here tonight, to open up a portion of your word, to love one another, encourage one another, pray for one another. Lord, we, we thank you for all your blessings. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So, if you remember, the Roman chief captain, his name was Claudius Lysias. And last week, we had seen Paul, when he started in chapter 22, verse 1, Paul had began his defense, and that's what it says. Chapter 22, verse 1, he says, Men, brethren, and fathers, hear ye my defense, which I make now unto you. So just to kind of catch us up just briefly, we know that Paul had went to Jerusalem, and there the James and the Jerusalem church said, Paul, there's people saying that you hate the Jews, you hate Moses, you hate the temple, you hate the law, you hate everything and especially those of the zealots. And so there's all these rumors going around. And so they said, Paul, why don't you go to the temple 
and do the Nazarite vow with, with these men or purge, purge uh, have a purity before everybody. And as he was there in the temple, the Jews of Asia, Asia Minor, we know of Ephesus where Paul had just been, uh, saw Paul and they started to start this rumor, this vicious lie, or it was a jump to conclusion that Paul had brought Gentiles into the temple. So once that happened, then they rushed him. Then this mob mentality took over. The zealots uh, took him and grabbed him, and they were going to beat him to death. The zealots didn't have to obey the same laws as the Sadducees did. The zealots could just right there try and convict you without any kind of hearing or anything, just kill you where you stood. But Claudius Lysias, who was the chief captain of the Romans there in Jerusalem, he was charged with keeping the peace in Jerusalem. He saw everything, grabbed centurions, and he went down and more or less rescued Paul from being killed by the Jews. So at this point, now uh, Claudius Lysias, he is asking, what has Paul done? What's the charge? And he cannot get a clear answer from this mob. The mob, we saw the same thing with the riot at Ephesus. Some said this, and some said that. And Lysias could not get a clear answer. So, what happens now, and when we had uh, started, we see that Paul had stood up and he had given a defense. We saw Paul recount his entire salvation experience, his personal testimony, the road to Damascus, the, the bright light, and... You know, what's amazing is the Jews gave him audience. They were listening to Paul. And that's what it says in verse 21, but in ver I'm sorry, in verse 22 of chapter 22, they gave him audience until, what, until he said what? <laughs> until he said that the Lord Jesus had sent him to the Gentiles. That was enough of your mouth. Because there's nothing worse than a Gentile. There's nothing worse than this, these dogs. Then they went and we see that they cried out, tore off their clothes. And so Lysias had to rescue Paul again. So he grabbed Paul out of the clutches of the Jews again, kept him in the, the Roman kind of garrison. It's, a Roman, it's not a Roman prison. It's a Roman holding place. Um, and then... So now Lysias says this. He's like, well, let me keep him. And then he bound him with that. What that is is thongs are like the leather straps in verse 25. And he was going to scourge Paul. Now what we're not told is if they went ahead and scourged Paul or Paul just in the nick of time says, is it lawful for you to scourge an uncondemned Roman citizen? That's what he basically told the guard there. And he's like, wait a minute. At no point was this even talked about that he's a Roman citizen. So in verse 26, the centurion went and told Lysias about this. Lysias came and he said, wait, are you a Roman citizen? And uh, Paul said, yes. And so Lysias, now one thing that was not for sale was Roman citizenship. But Lysias, but through corruption, through bribery, and through other means, you, you, had to be, you had to have a lot of money to bribe high-paying officials to become a Roman citizen. Uh, Lysias said at a great sum, 
At a great amount of money, I became a, a, a citizen. And, Roman, and uh, Paul said, I was born one. So now, here we go. Lysias has two problems. Here's where we start. He has to, because Paul is a Roman citizen, he must know what the charges are against him. A Roman citizen has many privileges and uh, privileges that uh, the other citizens didn't have as one of the privileges is that, that he had to tell Paul what he was being charged with. And secondly, Lysias had to create a report for his superiors of what Paul was charged with. But what's the problem? Lysias still doesn't know why the Jews were wanting to beat Paul to death and still want to beat Paul to death. So what does Lysias do? He says, you know what? I'm going to call this Jewish council that meets all the time, but I'm going to call them to come here, and they're going to have an informal meeting. That's really important in verse 30, because that's where we start tonight. He says, on the morrow, because he would have known the certainty whereof he was accused of the Jews, he loosed him from his bands and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. Now, this is an in formal Sanhedrin meeting. We need a, this isn't the normal Sanhedrin meeting where they're all dressed up and they're all sitting in their assigned seats and everything like this. This is Lysias calling them together uh, and he brought Paul. Now verse 23 says this, and Paul earnestly beholding the council said, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now there's a couple things we want to look at. This Sanhedrin, uh, we know the Sanhedrin is the, the ruling religious body of the Jews. And its, a, its authority was final in all things containing the Jewish law. Now with Roman, with civil law, they had limited power. Now, Rome was over the civil law. But the Sanhedrin, they were the final authority. Now, the Sanhedrin dates all the way back to the time of Moses, where Moses had 70 elders. Now, typically, the Sanhedrin was comprised of 70 elders, a chief priest. Well, there were three uh, main offices in the Sanhedrin. There was the chief priest, there was the officers, and there were the elders, or there was the scribes and the elders. And uh, it comprised of 70 people, back from Numbers 11, and what's interesting about that number, 70, is the Sanhedrin existed to be at 70 A.D. when Jerusalem was destroyed. So it's interesting, there were 70 of them, and so that's an easy way to remember it if, if you need to remember that. But the Sanhedrin was eliminated back to the destruction of Jerusalem. I mean, that's where the temple was gone. Now, there were two main religious divisions among the Sanhedrin. There were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The chief priests could be either, the elders could be either, the scribes could be either. But um, those were the two main factions of this. And we're going to see Paul and this, he's earnestly beholding them. Paul knows this. And remember, Paul used to be a Pharisee. Now, here in a minute, we're going to see that Paul says, I'm still a Pharisee. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more. Now, 
Paul earnestly beholding the council. That earnestly beholding is to gaze upon. That Greek word is he fixed his eyes upon them and it was with a confidence. And isn't it something, as, as Paul is standing there and he's standing before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, I mean, this is the same group that Jesus would have appeared to, uh, or some of the men, and he... And with all confidence and trust in the Lord. Now remember, this is after Paul wrote Romans 8.32. Remember what Romans 8.32 is? is? Who is he that condemneth? It is God who justifies. And he says, who shall separate me from the love of Christ? Can any of these things separate me from the love of Christ? And he said, none of these things. So Paul had all confidence and trust as, I mean... He, he wasn't cowering. He stood there and he gazed upon them. And then what does he say? He says, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now we're going to spend a little bit of time on conscience. And um, honestly, I don't know how far we'll get tonight because... Uh, we're going to talk about the topic of the conscious tonight. And like I said, like I've always said, I love going book by book, verse by verse, because when we hit topics that we need to stop at that we normally wouldn't look at, I like to stop. Paul says that in all good conscience before God this day. Now, Paul did not say that he was a perfect man. Paul said that his conscience, that he had not violated his conscious. Now, what is the conscious? What is the conscious? Paul, I'm sorry, one of Paul's favorite words is this word. 23 times Paul uses the word conscious. Twice in Acts and 20 times in all the epistles. And we read it. We read about the conscious in the word of God. And it would be good to, to look at this. In the Greek... The strong lexicon states, it, the conscious is the soul as distinguishing what is morally good and bad, prompting to do, to do the good and shun the bad. In the Latin, we know that conscious, con, means with, and science means knowledge. It's knowledge of oneself. It's knowledge of your moral values. Uh, the, in the Latin, the, the definition is it's internal awareness of a moral standard in the mind concerning the qualities of one's own motives. I like to think of the consciousness as, as is, is an inner judge or a witness that it is either approving what you're doing or it's condemning what you're doing. And that is in the conscious. Now, Here's the thing with the conscious. The conscious does not set the standard of right and wrong. Your conscious does not set what truth is. Uh, the conscious is not God-breathed. It's not verbal. It's not infallible. Now, Paul's conscious, now think about this. Paul's conscious allowed him to persecute and kill Christians before he was saved. Paul never violated his own conscience. So it's not the standard of right and wrong. It is your interpretation of what is right and wrong with the light that's been given to you. So I know this go, going a little deep, but I kind of wanted to, but um, I like the way that um, 
Wiersbe says this. He says, the conscience of a thief could be bad when he tells the truth about his co-thieves ratting them out. The conscience of a thief, he, he could have a bad conscience telling the truth. A Christian could have a bad conscience telling a lie. Or a bad conscience about you getting home and realizing the cashier gave you too much change. So you can, I mean, the conscious is, again, not the standard of truth. The conscious is like a, a window. Think of it a, a window. And the light of God's truth, God's standards, God's laws are like the light coming through that window. The clearer the window, the more light that you're getting in. Now what happens if that window starts to get dark? Less light comes in. And eventually, that window, when it becomes completely black, no light comes in. And we see the Bible describe consciences that are black and that are seared and like that. The Bible uses conscious many times. In the negative sense, it talks about a weak conscious in 1 Corinthians 8-7. A weak conscious or those who are at less at liberty. Uh, a wounded conscious in 1 Corinthians 8.12, those are those who stumble at other people's liberties. You have a defiled conscious in Titus 1.15. Now those are unbelievers where nothing is pure. An evil conscious in Hebrews 10.22. And then the worst of all is a seared conscious in 1 Timothy 4.2. A seared conscience is a person who has habitually sinned and deliberately sinned so much against what they know is light and what they know is truth that they are no longer sensitive to divine truth. They have sinned so much habitually that they've lost all sensitivity to when they are hearing truth. That's a seared conscience. Now, it also talks about the conscious in a good sense. There's a good conscious in 1 Timothy 15 and Hebrews 13, 18. Paul says this, Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. There's a blameless conscience, and we're actually going to see here in a little bit in chapter 24, verse 16, and then there's a clear conscience, and he uses clear conscience when he's describing the qualifications of a deacon. That the qualifications, they must hold the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. Christian consciences, informed by the standards of God's word, are able to assess or were able to self-judge more accurately. So when you have been given light, when you're in the word of God... What happens is the Holy Spirit, and we're going to talk about that here in a minute, what's the difference? When you're given the light and you stay in the Word, you are more knowledgeable, you are more aware of what God's standards are, and therefore it moves us, and if your conscience is being hurt, it's probably agreeable with, with the Word of God. Now, um, think about this for a, a minute. When I was... Um, I don't know if I want to bring this up, but uh, maybe I'll bring this up if April's dad uh, comes and visits us, which he'll be my father-in-law going on 27 years tomorrow. 
But uh, when I proposed to April, I, I knew I was supposed to ask her dad for permission to marry her. I didn't know that I was supposed to ask him first. So with all good conscience, I went and I asked April to marry me because I didn't know the truth or whatever the, whatever the truth is. I don't know if it's a law, um, but I didn't go ask him first because, okay, what did I do? I made an assessment of my own thinking, of my own uh, logical deduction. Why would I want to go ask him first if she says no? So, yes, of course I need to go ask her first. And then when she says yes, then I can ask him. So I, um, I went and I did ask him uh, for her hand, and he said yes. But later on, he, he said, Philip, you got the cart before the horse, didn't you? And you know what's bad is I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> I, st I didn't, what are you talking about? Now, I was young. Uh, I was, but there are things you don't know, and you don't know you don't know, Right? And so, yeah, I, with all clear conscience, because I didn't know the truth, I invented my own truth, didn't I? And with clear conscience, I acted out on my own truth. The Word of God is true. And we should let the Word of God be our guide, not our conscience. My dad always said, never let your conscience be your guide. Never. Because your conscience can be deceiving you. The, the question is, 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 does your conscience agree with the Word of God? Let the Word of God be your guide. Now, the difference with the Holy Spirit and the conscience is, the conscience is the part of our heart and mind that has been influenced by the wisdom and the light of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit reveals the truth to us. It gives us the light, it illuminates, and it convicts us. Uh, the Holy Spirit is a slap where a bad conscience is kind of like a nag. You know, you, 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 you don't know how you feel about either what you just thought, what you just said, or what you just did. And so when that ever happens, and we ever get that kind of nagging feeling that I just don't feel comfortable with that, I feel unsettled, we should go to the Word of God and compare it with the Word of God and pray about it, and you'll find that you will be revealed truth and your conscience will be settled. And so that's what, when the Bible mentions the conscience, having a clear conscience, a good conscience, and Paul says, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day, is Paul never violated the truth that he had been revealed. He had never deliberately sinned against the truth, willfully, habitually, against the truth which he had been revealed. Because what happens when you sin habitually, it's going to sting like crazy. It's going to, or if you sin willfully, it's going to hurt. It's going to sting. But the more that you do it, the more that conscious, that window is going to become dark. And then you'll learn to accept it. And then you'll eventually have a seared conscience. And that's what, in Romans chapter 1, God gave them over to reprobate minds to do those things which are unseemly. We want to be careful not to sin willfully. And 
if it is something that we're all, if you're having an issue gaining victory over that sin, we just go to the Lord, ask the Lord to forgive us and help us to overcome by the power of the blood to help me overcome this sin. And with desire, desire to overcome. And even if you need to talk with somebody and, and have them help you and pray with you and keep it private between you and your loved ones and everything, just um, you know, call on the prayer warriors, as Elder Ward used to call them. And so, um, but we need to deal with it and not try to learn to accept it because then you're on dangerous ground. Uh, the Bible will call you, you'll be categorized as a child of disobedience or one who's departed from the faith, having their conscience seared like a hot iron. And so we don't want to ever lose sensitivity of the conviction of the Holy Spirit or our conscience just be okay with sinning against God. Now, we see people, one more thing about the conscience and then I'll, then I'll stop. How many people do you know make, they get into dangerous ground when they make assumptions about what God would think? So they don't feel great about skipping church and going to the boat show on Sunday. But, so they come up with this compromise. They make this assumption. They, they are telling themselves a lie to what ease their conscience, right? To accept it. God will surely understand that I need a break. God will surely understand that, that I need to go to this thing and I just need to relax, or I need to go golfing, or I need to do this, or I need to go. Now, what has the Word of God revealed to us already? That we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves one another, right? I mean, there's extenuating circumstances. You're sick or you're out of town or there might be a legitimate reason why you cannot want to be here. You want to be here, but you can't be here. We know and we have revealed truth to assemble. So if I'm trying to talk my conscious out of not feeling bad for that, that's dangerous. Because I am talking myself into sinning willfully against God. And that's dangerous. If you keep doing that, and the easier it's going to get. Because that window is going to become dark, and you're going to, and pretty soon you're just going to ignore what God says altogether. Now, I don't want to go into a lot of the, the discussion of, I believe, a, a child of God. I believe, you know, there were times that I wasn't faithful. I was saved, but I wasn't faithful. But I could, the Holy Spirit never let me go so far. I, I knew that what I was doing, and then it wasn't long before I wasn't thinking about God, praying or reading the word of God. I was backsliding. And I praise the Lord, and I thank him that he just didn't take me. He didn't take me out. I felt like the prodigal son. You know, just wanted to go out and figure out what's going on, and, um, you know, you, you often hear that. I'm not making no excuses, but you often hear about preacher kids doing that and things, just... Uh, going out and being wild and like the prodigal son. But you know what? I, the Lord convicted me. And I praise the Lord for his grace that I did not do as evil as I could have. 
I did not go... He, he prevented so many things. When I look back on my life, I'm like, Lord, I don't know how you... He preserved my life. I don't know how many of you may have that testimony where you can look back and you just see how the, the Lord preserved your life, even though you weren't as faithful to Him as He was to you, and how He has preserved you. And it's by His grace. He's brought you to this very time, and this very place, and this very hour, and He's preserved you this whole way, and we look back, and we see God's mercy, don't we? His mercy. Oh, and then we ask Him to forgive us. Forgive us. Teach us, help us, so that way we can be an encouragement to others. All right, so as we look at verse 2, I wanted to really talk about verse 1. We're going to see him again in in chapter 24, verse 16. Verse 2, now comes the conflict. Verse 2 through 5. We may just get through 2 through 5 tonight. I wanted to try to get to 11, but... And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Now, Ananias, we should not get him confused with Annas. Annas was the high priest in Luke chapter 6, and early on in Acts, when Peter and John are before the Sanhedrin. Ananias, uh, he started reigning as the high priest in 47 AD, and he was the most wicked, evil, corrupt, and... Um, just, what's the other word I'm looking for? Cruel. High priest Jerusalem ever had. This man, Ananias. He was, he was hated. So he, even the Jews hated Ananias. And especially the zealots. The, the, the zealots hated Ananias because he kind of leaned pro-Roman. You know the zealots were not pro-Roman. They wanted him out. And this Ananias he would steal the tithes of all, I mean, the the tithes that were supposed to go to all the priests, he ended up stealing them. And here, and we see that he commands that someone smite. Now that word smite in the Greek, it's to strike. It wasn't just a simple slap. This same word smite also appears when they struck Jesus. This word, smite here, smite him on the mouth. And then, verse 3, Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall, for sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law. All right. Now this is an interesting verse, isn't it? Isn't it interesting that we saw Paul almost got beat to death earlier by the zealots and didn't say a word? He did not say one word, but now he gets struck in the mouth at the command. He didn't know that he was the high priest at the time. Remember, here pretty soon we're going to see that in verse 5. Paul didn't know that this man, because this was an informal meeting, Ananias probably didn't have on his high priest outfit or sitting in the right spot. All Paul knew was here's this elder who commanded this man to hit him, and then Paul says something. He says, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall, for thou sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law. All right, so there's two camps of thought here. 
Now, think about what Paul has already done. Think about Paul, what Paul wrote. In 1 Corinthians 4.12, Paul wrote this. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat it. Peter wrote to return evil with good. So how do you reconcile what Paul did as a reaction here? If we are to receive rebuke and then return evil with good and the revile not again, well, again, there's two camps of thought. First, first camp of thought, Paul was speaking prophetically. When he says that God shall smite thee, that is, God will smite thee, thou whited wall. Now, there's two different things going on here with whited wall. There is um, Ezekiel, chapter 13, when Ezekiel is prophesying, when God is, is speaking through Ezekiel to prophesy against Jerusalem, he says, you are a wall that has untempered mortar in Ezekiel. Now, uh, Actually, the, it says, Thus will I accomplish my wrath upon the wall. The wall was a symbol of Jerusalem. And, speaking against not only Jerusalem, but the false prophets in Jerusalem, and upon them that have dabbed it with untempered mortar. The untempered mortar that he was talking about were all the, the false hopes, the fake preaching, the false teaching, the false preaching that was going on in Jerusalem and all the false hopes which they had given them uh, about future consequences for their present sin. They were fooling them into thinking there was no future consequence for their present sin. Um, now the Lord did take Ananias' life. I, I, I failed to mention that, that actually in 66 A.D., during the Jewish revolt, remember when the zealots went into Jerusalem to kick Rome out, uh, the first, one of the first people they killed wasn't a Roman, it was Ananias. The zealots killed the high priest as soon as the, they went in there. But So Ananias did meet a rather violent end. So you could say Paul was speaking prophetically. Um, Paul also is exposing him as a hypocrite. He says, whited. Now, we get the wall from Ezekiel's prophecy, and whited was a very common Greek term that meant hypocrisy. You're appearing to be something you're really not. And Jesus used whited. He said, you all are like whited sepulchers. And actually, the quote is in Matthew 23, 27. Jesus says, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are, with, are within full of dead man's bones, and all of uncleanness. So Paul is exposing their hypocrisy. So not only is he speaking prophetically, as like Ezekiel, but he's speaking about the hypocrisy right here. You're sitting to judge me after the law, and command me to be smitten contrary to the law. In the, the Old Testament, in the law, it said that the judges shall judge righteously. And so the elder here, the priest, was actually breaking the law, contrary to the law. Now the second camp, now the second camp of people believe that Paul just lost his temper here. 
He was incensed with anger that he was hit on the mouth. Um, they'll say that, you know, look at Jesus. Look at the example Jesus gave us. Jesus did not revile this way. Uh, this was not something that Jesus did, that Paul did. Uh, Peter said that Jesus, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. When Jesus was struck in the mouth, the same word here, Jesus said, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? In John 18, 23. Well, if you take that view, of course, Paul is not Jesus. Paul is not the, the sinless son of God. Jesus is the sinless son of God. Paul, he very well could have been the godliest man who ever lived on the face, who ever lived of the earth. But Paul was still a sinner, saved by grace. And Paul even talked about him dealing with the flesh. Was Paul acting out in the flesh here? In Romans chapter 7, Paul says, I've got this struggle. I've got the spirit... What I wanted to do in the spirit, but I find myself doing the things I don't want to do. That is the struggle within all of us. But even though that, that could be true, and that's a good argument, I honestly, I, I kind of agree with the camp, the first camp. Um, the Bible does demonstrate to us that men are sinners. When, men and women... And that's one of the beautiful things about the Word of God is they are very honest about themselves. I mean, if you're an author and that's going to go forever, would you want to write down about all your flaws? And that's one of the, uh, the apologetics of the, um, the authenticity of the Word of God is here you have all these human authors talking about their faults. And that's God-breathed, God-inspired. So the Bible does tell us when people sin and as an example tells us when they sin. That's in there. So yeah, Paul could have sinned there, but typically the Bible will make it clear when it's teaching us that this was a sin. And it doesn't make it clear here. It doesn't say that Paul sinned doing this. It doesn't say that Paul was in the wrong, Paul lost his temper, Paul lashed out. Paul reviled when he shouldn't have reviled against. So I'm more in the first camp thinking that it's Paul prophetic and calling out hypocrisy, just like Jesus had called out hypocrisy. But in verse 4, what he didn't know what he was doing was he was actually breaking one of the laws. In verse 4, And they that stood by said, Revilest thou God's high priest? You just said that against God's high priest. Verse 5. And that word revilest, hold on, that word revilest, it's very strong. It's got a very, it's, it's, it's an imperative, it's a very strong word. They were upset that Paul spoke out against the high priest. Verse 5, then said, Paul, I wist not, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. You know, although Ananias was an evil man and a, and a disgrace to his office, the high priest was a God-ordained position with authority. And that Paul was not to speak out against that office. 
He was to respect the office, even if he didn't respect the man. He was to respect the office uh, of authority that God had given the priest. Now, in Exodus, actually, Paul even, and I love the way he... I see verse 5 as Paul humbly admitting a mistake. Paul is saying, I didn't know, brethren. And then he quotes Exodus chapter 22, verse 28. Exodus 22, 28 says, Thou shalt not revile the gods, nor curse the ruler of thy people. Just real quick. Thou shalt not revile the gods. Lowercase g, that command. Uh, he's not talking about that command does not do not revile against the false gods, the Gentile gods, the idols. Uh, you have to read it in context, and you do a bit of a word study. What does he mean by this lowercase g, gods? Do not revile against the gods. He's telling this to Israel. And the word is, and actually, um, in the Targum, Jonathan, it, it's a Western um, it's a Western Torah. It's a Western interp- uh, English translation of the Torah. They make this word judges there in Exodus 22:28. Thou shalt not revile us against the judges. So the word gods there, lowercase g, is anyone God has ordained to represent the authority on earth. So do not revile against who God has ordained, civil government, magistrates, Things of, those na- things of that nature. We're taught that in other places as well. And then the last thing of that verse was, nor curse the ruler of thy people. Paul immediately and humbly admitted his mistake. You know, I believe a character of a spiritual leader is a humble and a non-defensive attitude towards owning up to their own mistakes. A spiritual leader is in humility, non-defensive, and he admits he, he was wrong right here, but he doesn't. He takes responsibility for his words. Now, 6 through 11 was going to be Paul changes his approach, and then in, cha- in verse 11, the sweet comfort God gives Paul. Uh, him going through this major ordeal But if you've been given, in closing, if you've been given the light of God's word and the truth, we must, as God's people, submit to God's word and not deliberately sin against it. Of course. If you don't repent and ask God to help you overcome your sin, you will find that your conscience will start to fade. Again, it will become easier and easier and easier to do willfully disobey. You will be considered a child of wrath, a child of disobedience, someone who's departed from the faith, seared with a conscience. Colossians 3.6 says, The wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when you lived in them, but now ye also put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. First Timothy 4 says, In the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits, doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. When we Stop and pay attention to the, when our conscience, like I said, we don't let our conscience be our guide. We expose 
our heart and our minds to the light of God's Word and allow the Holy Spirit to guide you and to lead you and you will find that your conscience is going to be in agreement with the Word of God. When you start feeling a nagging feeling about what maybe something you thought, something you said or you did, go immediately to the Word of God. Go immediately to prayer and see, Lord, is this is this light? Is this something you're revealing to me? That's something I need to repent of. And I tell you, I, I love this lesson. Paul again will say later on in chapter 24 that he has led his life in a way where his desire was to be void of any offense of conscience towards man and towards God. Now, we do not, again, let our conscience be our guide. But if your conscience is bothering you, does it agree with the Word of God? Does it agree with the Word of God? Is your conscience permitting you to do something? Does that agree with the Word of God? The standard of truth is not your conscience. The standard of truth is not your conscience. Your conscience only applies it. It judges you. It either kind of accepts what you're doing or it rejects what you're doing. And so we take it all to the Lord in prayer, and I'm just so thankful he's so gracious to us. And um, all right, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the day. Thank you for this study and your word. Father, my, my prayer is, Lord, that anyone who's come under the sound of my voice does not have unconfessed sins before you. Father, wishing to hide their sin. Lord, we know that there's no hiding our sin before you. Lord, we pray that you will just convict them with your Holy Spirit to take away the darkness of their heart or the veil of their heart or the stony heart or whatever is causing them not to come before you in repentance. Father, we pray, Lord, you just have mercy and grace and help. Lord, we know that you are a help to us. And then, Father, your grace, oh, how sufficient it is, and your comfort to us when we need comfort, and you give us instruction. Lord, we love you, and we thank you, Lord, for your word, how you've preserved your word through all time, and it will never vanish, it will never fade away. Father, we can lean on you and lean on your truth and lean on your word for our guide. Father, help us to do that. Help us to be committed uh, going forward after today be even more committed to be in your word. We will thank you and give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.